Hello, and welcome to Bias, Not Biased, a podcast by me, Michelle Ferreira, a Brazilian designer living in Sydney, Australia. The goal of this podcast is to bring diverse voices to talk about equitable design, inclusion, and all the things DEI, and how representation matters in the tech industry. Today, we have the pleasure of talking to Aubrey Blanche. Aubrey uh, is the Senior Director of Equitable Design at Culture Amp. And now, Aubrey Blanche. Hi, Aubrey. How are you doing? Hey, good. Thank you so much for having me on today. No problem. I realized I never said my name and I forgot how to because people usually have a hard time with my name. So I'm Michelle. Uh, thank you for joining me on the podcast today, Aubrey. Um, would you mind telling everyone on the podcast a little bit about your history uh, and a little bit about you? Sure. So, hey, everyone, I'm Aubrey. They also call me the math path. Uh, which is a portmanteau of math nerd and empath. But I'm really someone who brings sort of a data and research-backed approach to thinking about equitable transformation, whether that's of organizations or products, but really thinking about how do we build a more equitable and a more inclusive world. So day job is that I'm the senior director of equitable design um, for product and people at Culture Amp. And then in all of that spare time, I'm also the CEO and founder of the MathPath, where I work with a variety of organizations um, to help them transform in more equitable ways. So yeah, that's a little bit of what I get up to day to day. That's amazing. And uh, we're going to dig right in because I love that the whole uh, message you have there. Equitable design. Can you give us a little bit more about what that means? What is equitable design? Why do we need it? Why is it important? Yeah, absolutely. So equitable design is really about sort of this theory of change that rests on the assumption that everything is a system and that the systems around us produce the outcomes they were designed to and so with really intentional design thinking, whether that's how we design how we spend our time or the way we design a performance review process or the way we design a technical product to interact with users, we can do that in ways that consider equity, not only both in the design intent, but also in the way that we measure and hold that system accountable for the outcome we intended it to have. So. Equitable design is really a theory of change and a set of principles that we can use to design and build a world that works a little bit better than the one that we've inherited. I love that. I love that because it's important to, I mean, try to build for the future and trying to build better, which is, I mean, 100% what we're um, we're trying to do. But it's, it, it sounds like it's a big challenge, right? It sounds like not a lot of companies are doing this. So, um, like I said, we're digging straight into this. What, what do you think is the biggest challenge for you know diversity, inclusion, any of these efforts that we're trying to do in this direction? I think there's, first of all, like folks from majority groups who either don't believe that there's something that needs to change or aren't willing to do the hard self-reflective work that it requires to evolve to live in a different world, right? So in order to create a different world, we have to be different people. Um, and so that requires that we grow and change, whether that in you know many cases is about becoming a more equitable leader or leading a more equitable team or more equitable department or a more equitable company. Um, but so that's the first thing. And I think it's just, just people who are, you know, reticent or confused or actively, you know, anti-change. Um, I think that's a really big one. 
But I think also there's often a misunderstanding of the types of things that create performative versus structural change. So Culture Amp, you know, where I work, we did um, our 2022 workplace DEI report. And in that report, because of the unique data sets we have access to, we were able to show which initiatives actually drive diversity, equity, and inclusion across organizations. And what we found was that companies are not always prioritizing the most impactful things. They're often prioritizing the easiest low-hanging fruit box check type things. And so when you say it's hard, it's hard to estimate because you don't know how many, you know, what is the difference between doing the wrong thing because you're misinformed and doing the wrong thing because you've decided <laughs> it's not worth it. Got it. Yep. No, that's, that's a very tough one, right? I mean, growing is hard anyway, but I, I imagine just growing this, this area seems like a big challenge. And um, one of the ones we try to touch on is the idea of it feels like we're preaching to the choir, right? It feels like we're preaching to people that are already interested in diversity and equity and inclusion. Um, what what made you get involved in, in this group? What made you, you know, pick up this pitchfork and this fight and go and go try to make this better for, for people? Yeah, so for me, it really came from like being a marginalized person myself, but recognizing in the same sort of measure, all of the privileges that I have access to. So, you know, for folks who don't know, like I'm a queer disabled Latina woman, you know, like that's, that's a lot of boxes to check. Um, but at the same time, like I'm white assumed, my disability is invisible, queerness is, you know, arguably not visible. And, um, and so for me, it was like, I was really frustrated by the problem of inequity and unfairness and exclusion in workplaces, in the tech industry, you know, more broadly. And so I said like, what's my highest and best purpose in this? And because of the unique combination of privileges and like oppressive lived experiences that I've had, I said, well, I can be an advocate and I can apply the skills that I've gained across my experiences to solving this problem. And that's something that felt really motivating and really purposeful. And so I realized that if I could figure out how to do that in a consistent and intentional way, I could also spend time teaching other people how to do that. Because like, if I can do it, anybody else can do it. You know, there's nothing that's fundamentally different about me as a person than there is you or anybody else. Got it. And, and so how do we educate people then? How do we get more people involved? Uh, and again, how do we get the people that are supposedly not interested, right? So the neuronormatives, the, uh, the cis, you know, like what, how do we get everyone in this bucket to learn from us and to do some more uh, for this, you know, to move us forward? Yeah, I think part of it comes down to like changing the incentives, like and explaining to people why it's valuable to them to know how to do this. Like you're upping your innovative potential. You know, you think of yourself as a good person, but you might be causing harm that you're not aware of. Like, don't you want to get in better alignment? Like you're never going to win over everybody, right? So there's going to be this like long tail of people who are just never going to get on the bandwagon. And I think we spend way too much time like 
thinking about the objections that they're going to raise and it slows ourselves down. I think for the most part, like people are pretty good. People don't want to be assholes to other people in their workplace, but so much of the things that like cause exclusion and cause these things are often unintentional or driven by a lack of education. So part of it is like, how do you make education accessible and pleasant? for people because we're talking about education that can be uncomfortable. So like, how do you sweeten that message a little bit while still giving people the chance to grow through discomfort? And so I think that can be about, you know, do you ritualize or normalize learning of one inclusion fact every week at the team meeting for a small team? Is it that, um, you know, everyone is tasked with having an inclusion goal as a part of their role responsibilities, right? There are different ways to encourage people to do this from an organizational structure and context perspective. And the exact how is going to be different for every culture. Of course. Um, so I can't like give you the, you know, no, of course. but that's what I think it comes down to is like you as a company decide to prioritize it and then you build it into the culture in the way that resonates with your sort of norms and practices, but do something like make it a part <laughs> of an expectation. No, I, I look, I, <clears throat> I love that you said that because it's actually one of my questions was, you know, I, it feels to me like a lot of what we do in companies are, uh, HR related right, or are some sort of a DEI group, ERG group, um, for those who don't know, again, I'm going to start saying acronyms, I'm going to cut them down and go diversity, equity, and inclusion group, or employee resource group, right, so you're giving people these groups and these support things, usually driven by HR, right, um, and so one of my thoughts was, how do we get it out of HR, and how do we get it embedded in the culture? in the culture of the tech people, in the culture of design, in the culture of whatever it is, so we can actually have everyone, you know, contributing to it and using it as, as a day-to-day. How do we show the value of it? And I think businesses think only in value, at least most businesses think in value. So is there a pitch for the businesses to say like, what's the value of diversity? How do we, how do we tell them the business value of something like this? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm a broken record. Everybody that talks to me hears the same story, but I'm like, it's about collecting data on this. You know, like it's not a complicated formula that inclusion and belonging drive engagement, right? Like that's just like a known thing in the HR, in the people, people analytics world. And so I think that so often, and CultureM's research showed, for example, that only 34% of DEI and HR professionals felt they were properly resourced to do their DEI work. And so part of that resourcing, but only 27% were like confident that they knew how to measure the impact of their programs. And so when you think about like, why aren't we making progress or why aren't we demonstrating value? If you're not collecting data, it's really hard to demonstrate that value to say, hey, this resulted in three more promotions for this employee, or we saw X percentage increase in underrepresented candidates, or we were able to achieve our BIPOC representation goals. So we without collecting data on both the diversity or demographics of your workforce, as well as the experience or inclusion, um, as well as the difference between those four different groups, which is the equity piece, um, for your organization, you can't demonstrate value, you can't demonstrate impact. And ultimately, you know, I said this on Twitter the other day and I was being a little bit snarky, but like, if you're not collecting data on this, you don't have a DEI program, you have a corporate hobby. Right. Like, 
Like you're yeah. unlikely to be making the most effective investments because you don't have data to guide your investments. So it's not about someone not being passionate enough or not smart enough, but it's like, but do you have the insight you need to actually move the needle where the needle needs to be moved? Right. It's a great question. If you're not collecting data, is it just a hobby? I 100% appreciate that. That's great. <laughs> a little bit. That's a little bit of a spicy comment. And like, it's okay. But if you don't have data, the other thing I would say is like, that's your next best step. Like, you know, one of the the fourth principle of equitable design is about progression. So like the constant idea that we're always moving towards this target of equity and inclusion, we know that it like, it's not a thing that exists, it's a thing that we strive towards. And so like, if you're at that point where, hey, it's a corporate hobby right now, you know, your next best step is to begin collecting data. So it's not that like, it's abandon all hope ye who enter, it's just, it tells you what the next thing to do is. Right. That's, that's, I mean, look, there's a lot there. I one of the things that comes to my mind is uh, we see a lot, at least, you know, in entertainment nowadays, representation changing and representation mattering even more. Uh, companies like Disney, who historically had, you know, uh, not a lot of representation in their movies with all their white princesses, for instance, investing in heavy, well, they're changing, right? So you have movies like Coco and you have movies like Turning Red and you have these things that are changing and trying to show different cultures, different aspects of different cultures, which I think is, is quite interesting. And I think tech is a little bit lagging behind on that. But I would love to ask if you know any good examples, any highlights that we can share of any areas in tech that you see like, this is, this is something that I would highlight and say like, this is actually going in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's aspects of a lot of different companies where they're doing something that's novel and innovative. So I think ThoughtWorks is a place that comes to mind as somewhere that's built a pretty exceptional um, culture. Um, I like to think, and I'm a little biased because this is my, you know, company, but at Culture Amp, I like to think we've done a pretty good job. We definitely still have gaps and places that we need to continue investing for sure. Um, but the progress that we've made over the last two years on our commitments has been pretty huge. So, you know, we made some really big commitments around anti-racism and in about 18 months, we were able to, um, you know, get to full population level representation of BIPOC folks. Um, we have a couple of gaps in leadership that we're actively, you know, that's one of our company level goals for the year is to close that gap. Um, and so, yeah, I think there are companies that are doing, um, doing well, and they're often the companies that are not necessarily the loudest about it. So, you know, you'll, you'll see that news in our impact report um, that we put out every year so folks can keep us accountable. But, you know, it doesn't come up in every conversation. It's just something that we do because it's how we want to run the business because we want to be that mission oriented values aligned business and we made some pretty big commitments in 2020 and we wanted to make sure they weren't just talk. Awesome. That's great. Um, on the other side of that, on the flip side of that, I always hear, especially from my, um, you know, uh, BIPOC friends, uh, you know, the challenge for them is that when they are applying to companies right they they have to reach out specifically to maybe another african-american colleague or another uh you know person with the same kind of um challenges minorities disabilities whatever it is that they have so they know how their company treats people so is there like a red flag that you right away say like oh my gosh this is the like this is a red flag that i would tell everyone to look for uh when they're applying or looking for <laughs> 
Oh, that's a good question. I don't think there's necessarily one red flag, but what I would say is like the most important person to think about in terms of inclusion in your experience is like with your manager. And what I wouldn't necessarily look for is like the world's wokest manager. Like that would be totally awesome and like, yes. But what I really would look for is the ability of someone who like wants to be your advocate and can be humble about the limits of their own understanding and experience. So like I would ask the hiring manager or the person who is going to be my manager, like, hey, what's an example of like an inclusion issue that you've helped someone on your team get resolved? Um, like, how do you think about supporting me as a person from X background who like might experience something that's kind of crappy and like, what support can I expect from you? And you're not looking for the manager to be like, I'm going to go get someone terminated. You know, it's <laughs> right. It's more like, I'm going to coach you through it. I'll create space for you. I'll escalate to HR. If this like is a more serious issue that needs like a formal response. Right. So you just want to hear that someone is going to take you seriously, that they yes. believe their experiences, that they've considered inclusion or equity in their leadership before. Um, so it's not that they're perfect. It's just that like they're thoughtful and intentional mm -hmm. um, because you can't teach someone to care about other people. Yes. So you can't teach them to care. Can you teach, can you teach them empathy? Can you help them have empathy? I think you can. I think empathy is a skill for sure. Like empathy can be grown. And I think it's really important. There was this article in the Atlantic a couple of years ago um, about how like empathy like corrodes your brain functioning, like or power corrodes your brain functioning. Oh, okay. Uh, so like power actually like degrades the empathy center in your brain. And so you think about folks who come from majority backgrounds, like they partially have degraded neurophysiology that makes empathy more difficult for them, but that that skill can be developed, that muscle can be developed with time, right? Because neuroplasticity tells us that the more of our brain that we use, right, the more that we can actually strengthen that. So I think that yes, like people who have these privilege-based blind spots are at a disadvantage, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. It just takes intention. And so that would be reading, you know, but the way that that changes, the way we exercise that empathy muscle is by listening to the voices of people who have different experiences from us. So whether that's the people we surround ourselves with in our personal lives, whether that's the voices we listen to on social media, the authors of the books that we're reading, you know, looking at the uh, representation of the voices of, of reporters um, that we follow. So I think that there are ways for us to build that empathy, but it ultimately comes down to us engaging with the narratives of people who are different from us. Yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. I, I, it's funny, you mentioned the, you know, the, the article from Atlantic about the, the brain and the other thing it connected with uh, is there's this thing about language that I was reading about how languages actually, the language you speak creates the reality you see. Right. So the fact that if you speak more than one language, you can see multiple realities, which makes you more open to seeing different realities, yeah. which I thought was an amazing perspective to think about, like people that usually, you know, I'm from Brazil, I speak Portuguese and I speak English. Right. Uh, and having that makes you at least see two different realities, two different ways of thinking. Um, they have different rhythms. They have different voices. They have different everything. Right. Then you you remove that person that speaks those two and you put them in the Netherlands where I lived for a while. And they have to learn a whole new experience with a whole new language and a whole new world in a way. And you have to assimilate all of that. So I think it does 
like learning a new language creates new pathways too in your brain. I think it's a it's an interesting way to force your brain to go like, can I see a different reality, right? And can I see something unique and new? Um, yeah. I want to go back to your book's uh, comment. Any books, authors, reporters you recommend we read, follow, you know? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I have so many answers for you right now. Um, like all of the badass women that I know have just written their books. And so I have like so many. So I'm just going to give you like a rundown of a few of them. So uh, one of the best books written about like social change and anything in the last 10 years is The Wake Up by Michelle Mijun Kim. Um, so she is just, she is an absolutely like luminary communicator, um, and is both like deeply direct and compassionate in a way that I think very few people can pull off. Um, so anyway, that's Michelle, um, the wake up, I think, uh, a new book that's coming out, I think just yesterday is called Inclusion Revolution by Daisy Auger Dominguez. Um, she is a longtime DEI practitioner, really focused on like the middle manager and what can they do to dismantle racism um, in the workplace. Um, and then uh, Cindy Oyoung just wrote All Are Welcome, which is a more like entry level comprehensive book on inclusion in the workplace. Um, and then I only do one more. Um, and that's uh, How to Talk to Your Boss About Race. Um, by Yvonne Hutchinson. So she's a brilliant equity strategist, um, but really focusing on like, how do you have the hard conversation? Um, so those four books are by folks that I really look up to. Um, yeah. Oh, uh, your sound is out. And my sound is out. Uh, I was typing very, very hard here to get all the books uh, written down to put them on the YouTube links so anyone that is watching can get them because these are very good recommendations. I'm already putting them on my little wish list here to get. Um, that's great. Any authors or anyone you would recommend them, um, you know, people following on, on Twitter or uh, anywhere else? Um, I would say those same authors are people that I follow on social media. They guide my um, my response um, cool. on so many different things. They're thinkers that I really look up to. Awesome. And I would love to hear if there's any... Um, so imagine someone's trying to break into tech and they're dealing with all these DEI challenges. They're dealing with all the, you know, just basically still struggling finding their 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 voice or you know finding their way to be themselves at work and 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 you know i i initially believe it's it's harder especially when you're starting out right because yeah. you're like you don't really have um a lot of experience behind you to do this do you have any any recommendation any advice for people that are starting out i think um it's just really important to understand that like you don't have to do everything to advocate for your community all of the time so it's really great if you have that extra space, if you have the political capital to spend, you have the passion that you wanna do work in the DEI space. But for so many marginalized and underrepresented people, we don't put enough, um, I think, respect and focus on the fact that like just existing in these very homogenous spaces is an act of resistance and is doing something powerful. And so I think we often take too much responsibility for changing systems that were never designed for us, like onto ourselves. And so I would just encourage people to both like push for change, like believe in a better future, help actualize it, 
but like understand that you're not solely responsible for like what happens once you put that effort in, like be accountable and responsible for it, but don't take more than your 100%. So basically you're saying don't start two podcasts trying to do this and trying to get everyone out. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Maybe a little it. bit. I think that might be what I was saying. <laughs> Maybe a bit over. Okay, good, good. Well, I really appreciate you joining the podcast today. Uh, thank you for uh, sharing uh, your history and, and your learnings with us. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for watching this episode. And if you liked it, share with your friends, give us a like and subscribe to the channel. See you next time.